Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. This is episode 12 of the Liberty Cafe, and I'm very glad that you're with me today. I'd like to talk today about the cancel culture. We hear a lot about that today, but the cancel culture is really nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. For instance, try being a conservative academic at California State Berkeley back in the 1960s, and I think you would have been canceled out pretty quickly. It goes on even here in Texas. It has been for a long time. I think my friend Michael Quinn Sullivan would tell you some things about that if you ask him about speaking out about the truth from a conservative perspective about what goes on at the Texas Capitol. You don't get very welcomed around there. So cancel culture is not just something that's on the left. It permeates everything that we do, but it certainly is true that it's more prevalent on the on the left than it is the right. And the tactics that the left is using today, the progressive left, the radical left, the socialist left, the anarchist left, are getting more radical and more violent. I'd like to start off talking about some of the folks who just don't get it when it comes to the cancel culture. They don't understand, and I've talked about this before, where the battle lines are being drawn these days. A lot of the folks wind up on the wrong side of the battle lines. I've talked about this a lot before, and I think in many cases, it's not because they want to be there, but they just can't see clearly about what the fight really is that's going on. And I've talked about this a lot in other places, and some here on the Liberty Cafe, but I'd like to start with evangelical leaders. We have seen over the last few years that Evangelical leaders or leaders in denominations that are thought to be evangelical, known to be conservative, such as the Southern Baptist Convention and the Presbyterian Church in America, have more and more adopted the language of the progressive left in their discussions. The problem with this, of course, is that as they adopt the language of the progressive left, they continually are also adopting the positions of the progressive left. And this is particularly dangerous when it comes to the church because what they wind up doing is reading into Scripture the cultural ideas of the progressive left. I think it's pretty obvious that doesn't work. One place this has recently popped up in my universe is in a letter from a group that is identified only as um, agency presidents and permanent committee coordinators in the Presbyterian Church in America, my denomination. They didn't identify themselves individually. And in this letter, one of the things they said was, we lament that peaceful protest offered in good faith to highlight racial injustice have occasionally turned violent, and we mourn with victims of that violence and pray for its end. To me, this seems like simple blindness. I I don't understand how you can look at what's going on in the United States of America today when it comes to all these protests and and call these peaceful protests in general. 
they seem to be a lot more violent in nature generally than peaceful. And I think even a lot of the peaceful ones have harmful intent to them. So what I'd like to do right now is just read a few quotes from some people who have participated in the protest and some quotes who some from some people and some quotes from some people who have been on the receiving end of these protests. And I think it will highlight the challenges with the statement by these Presbyterian ministers. Here's a protest leader from Madison, Wisconsin. This is not a peaceful protest, so if you came out here for a peaceful protest, you missed it. We're done being peaceful. Now we're demanding justice. Here's a, another person, Thandiwi Abdullah, who's the co-founder of the BLM Youth Vanguard. I know you want to tear some S up. If you want to set some corporations on fire, you know what? I don't care about target burning. I don't care that capitalism burns. I don't care that white people in their F office buildings are upset. Here's Melina Abdullah, by the way, the mother of the lady we just heard from, who is the lead organizer of Black Lives Matters in L.A. And, by the way, a professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State Fullerton being paid with our tax dollars. She says, We've been very deliberate in saying that the violence and pain and hurt that's experienced on a daily basis by black folks at the hands of a repressive system should also be visited upon to a degree to those who think that they can just retreat to white affluence. I think these things give us a pretty good idea that the purpose of these nationwide protests, which don't fool yourselves, these just didn't pop up spontaneously. There's a lot of effort that went behind a lot of these things. And the purpose of them was not just to protest the death of some black men who have been killed by the police. Those have been, some of those have been really bad, but that's not what these protests, most of these protests are ultimately about. So here, now I'd like to highlight that from the other side, for some people who were on the receiving end of these protests. Here's a South Carolina business owner on a 911 call. They broke into the restaurant and are stealing the money. 30 employees are stuck in the courtyard. They are barricading the doors and the protesters are trying to break in. I called 15 minutes ago and there are still no cops. These people are screaming. They are throwing things through the windows. They are assaulting people. Where are the freaking police? Why are we not stopping them? Ken Schneider is also a business owner in Charleston, South Carolina. He also made a 911 call. He wasn't in his store that night, but his son was. Here's what Ken said. My staff and guests were running for their lives while the police cowered at King and Calhoun and still haven't moved and left the entire city unattended. People in harm's way. Businesses destroyed. Are you guys ever going to show up tonight? Here is Los Angeles Councilman Paul Koritz. He wasn't on the receiving end, but he's a councilman who represents a significant Jewish population in Los Angeles. The attack on our community last night was vicious and criminal. Fairfax is the center of the oldest Jewish community in Los Angeles. As we watched the fires and looting, what didn't get covered were the anti-Semitic hate crimes and incidents. So not only do these accounts help us understand that a lot of the protests are anything but peaceful, it also 
goes to show that these protests are actually being enabled by government because in all these cases, the police aren't showing up. That's obviously in the CHAZ, the, the Autonomous Zone, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, but, it, but it's going on everywhere. Well, not everywhere, in a lot of places. Governors and mayors and council people are pulling back the police and they're letting these riots and this violence go on. There's something more to this than problems with racism or race relations in our countries. Yet the, the evangelical leaders in, I think, both of these denominations, the SBC and the PCA, struggle to see this clearly. Now I'd like to move on and look at another group of folks who are having a hard time seeing this, Texas Republicans. Texas, of course, hasn't had the same level of violence that we've seen in other parts of the country. But we have seen some right here in Austin. I was down a few weeks ago examining the damage after Sunday night riots, because I don't know what else to call them, here, right here in Austin, Texas. I was able to talk to people who participated in the events of that night. Most of them seemed more like protesters than rioters, but it was hard to say. I talked to witnesses who saw what was going on, but didn't want to get anywhere near it. And I looked into stores, talked to business owners of stores that were looted and with windows broken. And it's been pretty interesting to me to see how quiet Texas leaders have been on a lot of these things. We, we see some obviously getting up there and talking, but they've been pretty quiet even on these things. But they've been even more quiet or even more complicit, actually, when it comes to the COVID-19 shutdown. And that's where I want to turn my attention right now. As you may well know, Governor Abbott was sent a letter recently by the mayors of the large cities in Texas asking him to institute a mandatory mask wearing for all Texans. And if they, if he failed to do that, then give these mayors and county commissioners the ability to institute local mask mandates in their own cities and counties. Abbott didn't do either one, but instead he came up with this. He said that government cannot require individuals to wear a mask. Local Governments can require stores and businesses to require a mask. That's what was authorized in my plan. Well, those local mask mandates have gone into effect now. And we just saw over the weekend that the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission, the TABC, has announced a temporary closing time, they call it, for 17 bars across Texas due to COVID-19 violations over the past weekend. The TABC said the provisions that were violated by the bars included uh, violating the 50% and 75% capacity limits for bars and restaurants, respectively, and the requirement for six-foot distance between customers. And of course, these limits were all put in place by Governor Abbott's strike force to open Texas, as they call it. Uh, open it very slowly, I would say. So the, the bars that were in violation of these things have had their licenses suspended for 30 days. And the TABC must have been pretty busy because they've investigated some 3,500 businesses with licenses across Texas. I think one thing we can find from this is 
we can ask the question, why does the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission have its own police force? They're out there just looking to cause trouble, looking for people to shut down, people to fine, people to put in jail. I think probably that local police would have enough people to take care of this if maybe local police weren't running around doing things that they shouldn't be doing. But besides that, I think the problem here is the, I think the problem here is that even though Governor Abbott said that government can't require individuals to wear masks, they're really actually doing that, but they're just doing it in a way that it's kind of hard to trace back to someone who's responsible for this because they're just, the state government is telling the local governments that they can tell stores to tell and businesses to tell their customers to wear a mask. But that's kind of the way government works. It doesn't like to be held accountable. But they still like to accomplish what they want to accomplish, which is generally telling you what to do with your life. Of course, the scheme of using businesses to enforce the laws is nothing new. Most recently, we've seen this with immigration laws. The government's not going to stop people from coming in through the border. We're not going to deport people who come here illegally. We're even going to give them free stuff, let them live here. But if a business hires somebody that the government has allowed to come in and given free stuff and allowed to live here, we're going to find the business. And this goes much further back than when it comes to immigration law enforcement. In fact, it really got started, for the most part, when it comes to civil rights laws. The government in the 1960s, the Civil Rights Act, decided that we can't tell individuals whether they can discriminate against somebody or not. So we're just going to stop individuals from using their property to discriminate. So if somebody comes into your bar or your restaurant, you can't discriminate a against them. Well, you can't discriminate against them for certain reasons. And nobody thinks that discriminating against somebody because of the color of their skin, or nobody should think that discriminating against somebody for the color of their skin is a good idea. Yet, if you haven't noticed, the list continues to grow greater. Witness the Supreme Court's most recent decision. Now people can't discriminate against a man who says he's a woman. And of course, the government has also used its money to enforce these types of things. For instance, the government could use the civil rights laws to enforce just anti-discrimination against commercial property, but couldn't do it against the states and colleges. And so what happened was they said, okay, if you want any federal government money, then you're not going to be able to do these things. And so what happens? Everybody wants their federal money, so the laws apply to them too. But of course, don't think that these anti-discrimination laws against just about anybody, it seems, aren't going to stop with colleges, with public facilities, commercial businesses, restaurants, those types of things. It's not going to be that long before the cancel culture comes into your own home and your own job. As a matter of fact, it already has. Carol Markowitz is a columnist with the New York Post. She wrote a really good column that I just read this morning that had several examples of private or semi-private individuals 
who have been affected by the cancel culture. One was Mike Gundy. Mike Gundy is the football coach at Oklahoma State University, so he's a semi-public figure, but his crime against the cancel culture was that he wore a T-shirt featuring the logo of, of a station, the network One America News. And so he was forced to say he was sorry for the pain and discomfort he had caused by wearing this T-shirt. L.A. Galaxy midfielder? I assume that's a soccer player and a soccer team, although not familiar with the team or the midfielder, Alexander Kate. He was released from his contract over his wife's social media post. The Washington Post recently outed a left-leaning woman who's not a public figure at all, but she was attending a Halloween party two years ago in blackface, making fun of Megyn Kelly. But it didn't matter. The Washington Post outed her. And now she's being abused. And then, of course, the stepmother of one of the policemen involved in the shooting of Rayshard Brooks was fired from her job as a human resources manager. And she says it was because of her association with her stepson. This is just the beginning of the cancel culture. It's going to continue to grow and increase. And it, unless, of course, people like Governor Abbott, Texas Republicans, not all of them don't get it. There are some who do, but seemingly very few. Uh, and evangelical leaders start to get it. So we can all pray for that. We can all speak up ourselves. I think a, another really good thing to do is read people who do get it, who do understand the cancel culture. And I'd just like to close with a list of a few who do do that. Uh, Douglas Wilson is a pastor up in Moscow, Idaho. He gets this really good, and he gets it from a good, solid Christian reform perspective. I'd read all of Douglas Wilson. You can get Mark Stein is another one. He, he's a Christian. Don't know too much about his uh, background there, but he also gets it. He, he has been attacked by the cancel culture when it comes to global warming. He is in his ninth year in a lawsuit from when he was sued by Michael Mann for mentioning Michael Mann's bogus hockey stick, which has to do with global warming. Read Mark Stein. The cross-politic bunch of guys up in, also in Moscow, Idaho, especially Toby Sumter, are really good. Tim Bailey is really good. Conrad Black over at The Federalist. Molly Hemingway and John Daniel Davidson. Excellent writers and excellent understanding of the cancel culture. Read them. And then I'd really like to end on a note of optimism here. Because just today, the federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. ordered Judge Sullivan to dismiss charges against General Michael Flynn. If you haven't been following this for the last two or three years, it's one of the greatest miscarriages of justice that I've ever seen. I'm sure there are a lot of other people who have been subject to these kinds of things, but this has certainly been one of the most prominent of those. And of course, because it was folded into the Mueller investigation, which has been probably the greatest coup attempt in the history of the United States, starting to feel like Donald Trump a little bit here, saying the greatest this, the best that, the best of all times. So I'll lay off that. But what I do want to say is that is that the lawyer for Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell, really gets it. She's been engaged in this fight for two decades now. She defended several of the defendants 
in the Enron scandal back around the turn of the century. And while certainly there was a lot of people doing some bad things at Enron, there were also a lot of people who didn't do anything wrong, but who were taken down and convicted by a runaway federal justice system. Andrew Wiseman was part of that, and it's not coincidental that he showed up again in the Mueller investigation. And so Sidney Powell took an almost hopeless case with the entire weight and strength and power of the federal government going against Michael Flynn and turned it around and won it. So I think Sidney Powell really gets it. You ought to read her book about the Enron scandal. You ought to read what she's writing, a new book she's just put out, and I can't remember the name of it, but you ought to read that. And I think also I'd say that Michael Flynn gets it. I think he gets it more now than he did when all this started. But that was really one of his problems and why he was made a target by the FBI, because he did get it. And he would have figured out the scheme of the CIA and the FBI and the Justice Department and whoever else was involved to hamstring the Trump administration or even have the President of the United States removed from office through impeachment or whatever other mechanism they might be able to find. So I think we should be grateful for Michael Flynn for putting up a fight. We should be grateful for Sidney Powell for helping him and leading him with that fight. We should be grateful for all these other people I've mentioned who are helping us understand the attacks on our liberties and freedoms. And in the case of the Christians I've talked about, the attack on God's kingdom by those who don't believe. So I think there's a lot to be grateful about. I don't know if the efforts of all these people are going to wind up saving the United States of America. That may not be in God's plans. It would be nice to think that it is in his plans. But we know that Jesus Christ this very day is ruling over all of creation He's our King and our Lord. He is guiding and directing all these things. Nothing gets done without his knowledge and without his consent. And he is shaping and moving all things in his recreating this new this world, making all things new, and making this earth the place that one day that all of us who know and love him will live with him for eternity. Thank you for being with me today on the Liberty Cafe.